0: Not some anonymous being in a distant place, and to define in no uncertain terms the consequences of inaction. Mm -hmm. Let the battle begin.
1: We are talking with Don Hendricks. Uh, Don Hendricks is not a historian, as he would like me to tell you, but he has been reading American history for over 55 years. He is also an American Revolutionary War reenactor. He's been doing that. And he has relatives who actually were signers of the Declaration of Independence. He's taking us through a a really incredible journey. Uh, Really, most of us don't understand the history of the war, how it was uh, how it occurred, uh, how the armies went from place to place and what happened as they were moving. Uh, but we can get a feeling for the times by looking at how the signers of the Declaration of Independence were treated by the British. Because what they had committed, as far as the British had uh, were concerned, they had committed treason. And the punishment for treason was death. So, Don, after, after the war in, was sort of over in, in uh, New Jersey, uh, it was kind of at a standstill
2: for a while. What happened? Well, the, it is exactly at a standstill, a stalemate, because the British army can't maneuver in the north. They're, they're totally surrounded. So the British come up with the idea of coming to the south. Taking, they take the, put the armies onto the ships and bring them down to Georgia. They had heard and believed that two thirds of the people in the South wanted to remain loyal to the king. And if there was an army present, they would fight for the king. At least that's what the British believed. And so they would do that. And starting in 1778, they go down at the end of the year, they go down to Georgia, the weakest and smallest of the colonies. And so they, uh, Attack Georgia down there. They uh, win. They win. They they get a foothold, and they Georgia colony is really up near the coast, up near the Atlantic Ocean, and it doesn't go too far back into back into the back country because that belongs to the Cherokee Indians. So it's along the north, the South Carolina and Georgia border, and up uh, up against the coast. The, the signers. We look at one signer in. Uh, Georgia, and that is George Walton. He's 30 years old at the time that he signs the Declaration of Independence, which is now a couple of years old. He is a, a, an attorney and a very good attorney and will be uh, and legislature and governor of Georgia to later on in life. Well, in December of 1778, he He is a soldier in the militia. He's actually an officer. And uh, while he's defending Savannah, his hometown, he is shot through the thigh, comes off his horse, and is captured by the British. He is imprisoned and sent down to St. Augustine, Florida, which is where the British had a, a fort, an old Spanish fort, and that's where they put their important prisoners. Uh, But he is released in the fall of 1779 in a prisoner exchange. And after the release, he goes back up into Georgia and he becomes the the, uh, acting governor of Georgia at that time. So that is his story. And as the war progresses, the British move up into South Carolina. The thing they want to capture is Charleston. And so they surround and besiege Charleston in 1780. The signers there, if you look at their names, signers of South Carolina are Edward Rutledge, Thomas Haywood, Thomas Lynch, Jr., and Arthur Middleton. Now, Thomas Lynch, Jr., uh, I'll just mention him quickly. He was one of the youngest signers when he signed the Declaration of Independence, and he was ill, and he, he was of a weak constitution. And so when he went back to South Carolina, he went onto a ship with his wife in order to go to the islands to recover his health, but the ship was lost at sea. And so he's dead by this time. But the others are still alive. And they're all soldiers in the militia. They're all officers. And they all get captured with the fall of Charleston. Uh, I first like to talk about Arthur Middleton. He's a very wealthy planter. He's 34 years old at the time of the signing. And his plantation is very large. He inherited from his father. And he loses his property, all his movable property is lost. And his house is not burnt down, but he loses a good portion of his house. So all his property is gone. He is uh, sent uh, to St. Augustine along with the, his other three uh, South Carolinian mates. He is held down there for about a year. Each one of them were released after about a year of imprisonment. And he went back to uh, Charleston and rebuilt his life there after the war. The next is Edward Rutledge. He studied law. He was also a plantation o- owner, also very wealthy. He was the youngest signer of the Declaration at 26 years old. And he is also a soldier. And he is captured by the British, as we said. And uh, once he is released, he would continue to serve the people of South Carolina. And he would eventually become their governor in 17. 17- uh, 98. But he also had, uh, he lost his property and had to rebuild his life. And Thomas Haywood Jr. He was also, he was one of the wealthiest men. <laughs> All these men are very wealthy. He's 30 years old when he uh, signs the Declaration of Independence. He studied law in England, and he comes back to, uh, to the colonies and sets up a very good practice of law. And even while he's still doing uh, his plantation duties, he is captured while defending Charleston and St. Augustine. And there is a song, you can look it up on the internet, uh, he, while he's in prison for J- July 4th, he writes a song, God Save the the States, sung to the tune of God Save the King. And it catches on and it was noted in American history quite until quite recently. We've forgotten a lot of those things since then. And that is South Carolina. Next, the, the British take all of South Carolina But they lose the Battle of Kings Mountain, which costs them dearly as far as the population is concerned. If the army cannot win, then the militia who are loyal to the king will not turn out. And Cornwallis is stuck with the dilemma. He loses one third of his army in October of uh, uh, 80 uh, at Kings Mountain. Then he loses another third in January at Cowpens, South Carolina. And now he needs reinforcements. He's a long ways from Charleston. He gets the notion to go up into North Carolina and then on into Virginia. So he does that. He continues up into North Carolina. And in March, he fights at Guilford Courthouse. He goes through North Carolina, doesn't stay there too long, and goes up into Virginia, hoping to get out to the ocean where he can get resupplied with men and munitions. And he gets up onto Yorktown. And that's the last of the founders, we want, the signers that we'll look at. And that's George, I'm sorry, that's Thomas Nelson Jr. He is a plantation owner. His house, his stone, beautiful stone house is in Yorktown. He's 37 years old when he uh, signs the declaration. On his signature, in real money at that time, he raises $2 million to pay f- for the French fleet. And the French fleet will come in and they will block the British from coming in and and resupplying uh, Cornwallis. In 1777, he did uh, suffer a stroke, which affected his memory, but he kept on going on. And in 81, he serves as governor of Virginia. And in September of 81, he leads, as a general in the militia, he leads 3,000 Virginia militiamen down to Yorktown, Cornwallis has taken up residence in Thomas Nelson's house. Thomas Nelson realizes, or recognizes that the, they are can, they are cannonading Yorktown, but they are not aiming at his house. He demands why his house is not being bombarded, and they said out of respect for you, sir. And he says, "Give me a cannon," <laughs> and he he gets man mans the cannon that fires the short the first shot into his own house, which. Receives quite a few cannon shots. And shortly after that, Cornwallis will surrender. So, uh, and Thomas Nelson Jr., who raised so much money and lost so much, he, he will die a pauper. So he will not recover his wealth at all. And
1: we all you know Don, you've, you've outlined some really impressive stories. And these people were not ordinary people. And when I said in the beginnings that in the beginning that they were all at, at, at they were at great personal risk, yet they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to win to win that war, to win the freedom that we uh, have enjoyed. Um, and what's impressive to me is that almost every single one of them was extremely wealthy. They had so much to you to lose. It's not like they had like a little house somewhere and two horses and a you know and a bunch of chickens. I mean, these were people who had enormous amount of real wealth. Can you imagine being able on a, a signature to raise two million dollars back then? I can't even imagine what that, that that what that would translate to in today's money. But yeah. I mean, that's just a, an enormous feat, and then to go and insist that the French bombard his own house and and level it to the ground so that it would uh, put the fear into the heart of Cornwallis uh, and also deprive him of probably what was a very beautiful house. So that is what's so impressive about these stories, is that every single one of them uh, risked everything, and most of them lost everything some made it back and some
2: did did, didn't but that is the risk that they took they were amazing men they did honor their pledge that they made they understood the solemnity of an oath that once they took this oath they were not going to go back on it they had each other's back and at the signing um when they, when they signed on, I believe it would have been on August the 2nd, and everybody's there signing the, the final copy, that John Hancock says, well, men, now we must all hang together. And Benjamin Franklin said, yes, indeed, we must all hang together, or most assuredly, we will all hang separately. And so they, under, they understood what they were getting into. And Benj- Benjamin Harrison from Virginia, he was a big portly fellow, tall and big boned and heavy. And Elbridge Gary from Massachusetts was a short, thin man. And so he turns to Elbridge Gary, who is just behind him signing, and he says, well, I will fare much better than you for when they hang me, I'll be dead in just a minute. But you'll be kicking for at least 30 minutes before you die. Those are some of those incredible stories. Do you have any others? I mean, personal stories of the people who uh, were present and active in that era. Well, well, you notice who didn't sign things, uh, sign the uh, declaration. George Washington didn't sign. Why didn't George Washington sign? Well, because he had been uh, made the commander of the army. So he was up in Boston. Otherwise, his name would have been on this list. What about Patrick Henry? How come he didn't sign? He was there at the first Continental Congress. He wasn't at the second because he had become the governor of the rebellious Virginian. Uh, now state instead of colony. So he was absent. And uh, let me look at some other fellows. Oh, the ones that died. Let me give you their names that we might uh, remember them. Uh, John Morton from Pennsylvania died first in 1777. Button Gwinnett died in Georgia in 1777. Philip Livingston from New York, he died in 1778, but his mansion was further up the, the Hudson River, so it did not get damaged when uh, How went up to White Plains. In 79, we lost North Carolina Joseph Hughes and Pennsylvania's George Ross and Thomas Hart from New Jersey, who we already mentioned, and Thomas Lynch Jr. from Virginia, who we already mentioned. And in, 19, in 1781, we lost George Taylor of Pennsylvania. So these men, they did not get to see the fruits of their labors that, and the fruits that we enjoy today. So tell me again a little bit about what What did
1: the regular population, how did they fare through all of this? It must've been extraordinarily difficult. I know there was winters involved. Uh, they probably couldn't grow the food that they normally would've grown. Um, there was a lot of hunger,
2: I would imagine, um, and a lot of suffering. To read, to read um, good books on it, there's one by Jonathan Plum Martin called Yankee Doodle, Private Yankee Doodle, I think is the name of Jonathan Plum Martin. He he began to serve when he was 14 years old from Connecticut. He served the entire length of the war. And you would read that and every other page he says, we didn't eat for three days. We didn't eat for two days. We didn't eat for one day. And all, all this hardship that the army went through but the people in South Carolina, especially, the war was very grievous there because it really was a civil war. It was brother against brother, cousin against cousin. There were lots of murders, houses were burnt, uh, cattle were stolen, horses were stolen as uh, the war progressed through their area. It was very, there were over 200 battles fought in South Carolina. Though some of them were small militia ones that would be 25 against 25, but still they were battles. And uh, we had ama- amazing patriots. At one point, really, the only person fighting uh, in, in the uh, South, in South Carolina, was Francis Marion, the Swamp Fox, and the few people that he had around him. That's how, how quickly that the uh, British went through South Carolina and was able to subdue the population. And Francis Marion kept the war alive in South Carolina, so we have a lot to be thankful for him. So a lot of the the initial fighting, however, was in
1: Boston, was it not in the colony of Massachusetts?
2: Yes, that's where it started, but it didn't. Uh, Boston was closed up. The army, the American army, as it formed, completely surrounded it, and the British couldn't do anything about that. So they had to leave. They would have stayed in Boston had not uh, General Knox got the great idea to go to Fort Ticonderoga and get the cannons out of Fort Ticonderoga, which they did. And they mounted them on the heights around Boston, which caused the uh, General Howe to realize the danger of his position. So he would pull out of Boston. As long as they didn't fire upon the city, he would leave Boston and not burn it down. And uh, so they agreed to those terms and they left and went... He took the army and all the Bostonians that he could take that wanted, you know, they wanted to stay loyal to the king and they knew they would uh, lose their property and whatever when the patriots came back into town. So they took as many of them as they could take up to Halifax. They reformed there and then that's where they, uh, George Washington guessed that they would take New York because it'd be the easiest place to take. So that's why he moved his army down to New York, but it was untenable. They had no Navy, and the British com- completely ruled the, the rivers and the ocean. So Washington actually wanted to burn New York City and leave, them not- leave the British nothing, but the Congress would not allow him to do that. And he was very, he was v- very loyal to the Congress. They gave him dictatorial powers, and he did not use them. He always uh, maintained his subservience to the um, private sector, the, non- the, the non-military sector. So the, the shot heard round the world and
1: everything was in the Boston or Massachusetts colony. And yes. they, they actually did their job. They drove the British out of, of the colony. And uh, of course, like you said, the British ruled the sea. So it was pretty easy for them to get on their ships and the natural place for them to go was New York oh. a port of entry to the country. And obviously a port of entry for them, uh, their navy and the soldiers as well. So, in the final minute or well,
2: two it, Dan, that we Doctor have, Dr. Dan, on that point, they they could not take New. Uh, the British did not leave New York. They retained it to the end of the war. The, the The Americans couldn't take it back. And so, by by the law of war, they they would have been allowed to keep New York as British. But they uh, convinced through. Uh, the Benjamin Franklin and John Adams to uh, allow the Americans to take back New York. So, uh, would you like to give us just
1: a final minute or two of closing, a uh, sum up of what what your feelings are about the signers, the signers of the Declaration of Independence? and the debt
2: we owe to them. There is no words that you can give to these men other than honoring them by reading their life stories, studying their words. They left lots of writings behind. And there's so many points where they said, we're doing this for the yet unborn millions. And that would be us that they sacrificed their lives, their liberty, and their sacred honor for. And many of, you've already alluded to it, many of the designers of the Declaration died broke, and many did well. It's just the the, uh, luck of war. And so I think that these men whose names we went through today, these were studied in American in American history up until the progressives took over the education system when they didn't want people to think uh, badly about their government, (laughs) apparently. But these men, everybody who went to school uh, knew all the founders and could recite uh, anecdotes from each one of their lives. So we really need to get back to that. Because of what these people did, they gave us a tremendous government and a tremendous uh, constitution. And they left such uh, a legacy, a great foundation for us to stand upon. Don Hendricks, you've been a fascinating guest. Uh,
1: This history, this oral history is so important to remember. Thank you so much for being a guest on Freedom Forum Radio.
2: Thank you, Dr. Dan, for having me.
0: I appreciate it.